Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to uh, have this time together. I love Mondays. Get things started off on the right foot. I'm going to have Patrick Albanese join me in just a minute. And then David Cross is going to be in studio. He's written a book called Work of Influence, Principles for Professionals from the Book of Daniel. And then Bob and Cheryl Moeller will be in studio with me for a full hour. We're going to be talking about uh, your broken heart and how to mend and heal from a broken heart and how... Heart is at the core of all relationships. That's going to be the show today. I think you're going to love it. We're going to have a little break, and then we're going to bring Patrick on in 60 seconds. Thanks for being with me today. Abiding with Christ throughout the week can sometimes be challenging. Faith Radio offers a free resource to help you called the Prayer Devotional Email. Sign up under the Subscriptions tab at MyFaithRadio.com and start receiving weekly emails containing a thoughtful, encouraging quote and a prayer. It helps set your mind on God as you deal with the many other demands of life. Stay focused and at peace with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional Email. Connecting your faith to your everyday life. I appreciate the constant biblical knowledge. I'm a stay-at-home mom. So reading the Bible can be tough because I can't sit down and read very often. So Faith Radio is definitely my um, place to get the word. Uh, Faith Radio, just listening to the programs, it's just very much inspiration to me. We're sharing each day together on Faith Radio. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. Welcome to the show, Monday, Monday, Monday. You know I love Mondays, and I always get a chance to talk to my friend and colleague from prestigious West Des Moines, Patrick Albanese. And I was just reading that uh, studies link fluoridated water to lower IQs. What's an IQ, Patrick? That's a great question. Because I drink tons of it. Yeah, so what you're saying is the guy with the missing teeth is actually smarter than we thought, <laughs> right? I mean, aren't you supposed to drink fluoridated water? Isn't that supposed to help your teeth and all that? Yeah, it's supposed to help your teeth. So the guy, you know, they always like to make fun of the guy with the missing teeth going, he ain't so bright. <laughs> yeah, but he's yeah, maybe but he's smarter than the rest of us because he's not using the fluoridated water. Yeah, he lost his teeth, but he's got his brains. Now, is all the fluoridation taken out of bottled water? Do you know? Oh, that's a great question. I don't I think know. it is. I, I think they remove uh, fluoride from bottled water. I yeah, think. I, I, one of my, uh, there was a, uh, an episode of uh, a Penn & Teller show where they uh, took all these designer, you know, water bottles uh, at this f- famous Hollywood eatery. I think it was a place I might have used to work at, in fact. Uh, and they would just fill it with a garden hose and back, and then they would have... <laughs> The, the water steward come out and present the different bottled waters. This one's artesian. This one's from the Philippines. And mm-hmm. you know, people would make their choices and go, oh, this one's very good. And they all came from the exact same garden hose. <laughs> <out of the laughs> <restaurant. laughs> 
So we think we have an elite sense of tongue and smell and taste, but we maybe don't. We might be more gullible than we think. Yeah, you know those. Remember they used to do the blindfolded taste tests of the sodas and and things like that. And I remember working in a restaurant and uh, somebody said we didn't have ginger ale. And uh, so uh, one of the people I worked with said, oh, just um, uh, put some seven up in a glass and then put a tiny splash of uh, Pepsi in there and it will look like ginger ale and therefore it will taste like ginger ale. (laughs) And it worked almost every time. You know, they might say your ginger ale is a little different, but it's good. Yeah. 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 It's sugar pop. It's sparkling sugar pop, which is usually pretty good. Which is usually pretty yeah. good. You can't, take, you can't use the word sugar anymore. And yeah. that was on cereals. Sugar Frosted Flakes, Sugar Pops, Sugar Cinnamon Crisp. <laughs> right there in the name. That and word has been struck from the record, hasn't it? But it's still in the ingredients. Oh, I know it is. It's still there. Yeah. You just got to look for it now. Yeah. All right. Uh, as I look at this episode with Jeffrey Epstein, this he's now officially dead, and they say he committed suicide, but... There's been all kinds of reports about that maybe he didn't. Had some assistance. Had some assistance. Now, obviously, he's linked to a lot of very powerful people. And I'm thinking of this great verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. It says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper to God's holy people. Now, when I think of, for example, President Bill Clinton Mm-hmm. He apparently had been uh, traveling on his Jeffrey Epstein's plane 29 times. If Mr. Clinton, President Clinton, had to do it all over again, do you think he would have avoided that? Oh, gosh. It certainly you would think so. You know, I mean, whatever you think of Bill Clinton, he was always a very, very smart politician. Uh, you know, he, he, he didn't just know the right things to say. Uh, he knew... Uh, often at times uh, when uh, during the midterms, he lost, I think, the Senate and the House. And so he went and he signed some Republican bills uh, into law and said, this is what the people want. And so his instincts were always, uh, I think, you know, pretty healthy, I mean, even if they kind of trace back to I'm just trying to look for the survival of Bill Clinton here. But um uh, I, you know, I think in retrospect, uh, you know, we, we have no idea that what he did on this island and why he accepted these rides. But when you're a high profile politician, there's going to be all kinds of people that want to be next to you. Uh, and some of them are not going to be good people. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be a horrible place to be in life, having to question everybody that wants a piece of you. Yeah. You know, That's why I, I choose our very low fame approach to life. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, Patrick. I'm a big yeah. fan of our low fame approach. And I know yeah. that president Trump has, been very braggadocious of the success of the stock market under his leadership, but nothing yeah. compares to what what happened under uh, Bill Clinton's watch. I mean, the stock market went just absolutely through the roof under Bill Clinton. Yeah, it, yeah, there was a, and you know, we we're going to have the ups and we're going to have the downs. In fact, um, uh, my wife and I recently met with a financial advisor um, just to see if I could cut her lawn for her, (laughs) make some extra money. And they, they seem to be doing well, Mm -hmm. but you know, she said one of her pieces of advice was you just can't freak out when things go down because they'll go back up and don't get crazy when they go up either, you know, but it's, 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 uh, you have to understand if you look at the history of the stock market, it goes up, it goes down, it goes this way, it goes that way. And if you're 
comfortable with that, we can put some money there. If you're not comfortable with that, then we better find something a little bit more conservative for you. So, yeah, and Bill Clinton caught it. At a, he caught a wave. Um, can he take the credit for it? I don't know. You know, I, I used to always get upset my time living in California when George W. Bush was president. You know, if gas went up, people would say, oh, that George Bush, oh, the gas, look what he did, look what he did. And then if it went down, they'd say, gosh, I wonder what happened. I'm like, well, if you're going to blame, it's the same thing that happens with God, right? You know, God gets all the blame, none of the credit. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like, gosh, everything's worked out great in my life so far. I am really good. Yeah. And something goes wrong, you say, why does God hate me? So <laughs> it's that volatile stock market. That's why we have our money in mayonnaise jars underneath the bed. Hermetically sealed. Of course they're hermetically sealed. Yeah. We're not stupid. You know, my, my brother actually, he didn't do the mayonnaise jars, but he had, he had a waterbed. And after he passed away, when we were draining the waterbed, my sister, who kind of knew of my brother's proclivity, said, check everything. So if you see, you know, a box of cereal, don't just throw away the box of cereal, open the box of cereal. <laughs> and sure enough, there'd be some couple hundred dollar bills in there. And we drained the water, but there was money all over the place. So he literally put money under his mattress. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. was, he had still, it. Yeah. It's uh, I don't even know. Can I even, I, sh I can't tell you the amount. Cause it was, it was like, you go, what? Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah. Was so funny. comedian Bill Maher, which I don't find funny, um, I find him actually very offensive, but he said... Is that, that, that an oxymoron then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said the, uh, the recession would be worth it because it would get President Trump out of office. And President Trump said the economy's good. Uh, you know, how do you understand this kind of back and forth? I, I think, and, and I think this is something we all have to watch ourselves for, you know, praying for something bad to happen so that we can hopefully have some good down the road. Um, you know, maybe an example, we're not really good at being patient, wanting somebody to get their comeuppance, right? Um, like, uh, use Jeffrey Epstein. People are saying, oh gosh, the guy got to commit suicide and uh, he won't see real justice. And you're going, well, we have to be patient as Christians and understand that he'll see whatever justice is coming his way. Um, it upsets me to see people praying for bad things to happen because they think that uh, as a result, they'll get what they want. Because I, I, I try to avoid that trap. It's very easy to do with politics. You go, golly, uh, if the economy would suffer, let's say it was under Obama, then uh, maybe Mitt Romney will win the election. It's like, well, let's not let's not pray for a bad economy or for bad things to happen to people or for shootings to happen. Or for uh, uh, It disturbs me. And as, it as it does me. It's become very front and center, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Patrick Albanese is my guest, and you know him on Mondays as my regular guest. We open the show with him because, you know, after a long weekend, sometimes you just have to ease into the week. And we like to talk about what went on over the weekend and what's ahead for the week. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, lots more with Patrick Albanese. Welcome back to the show. Patrick Albanese is my guest. He is my friend uh, from the great state of Iowa. And speaking of Iowa, is the Iowa State Fair still on, or when does that end? It ended yesterday. Okay. And uh, gosh, the politicians are gone. <laughs> well, it's got to be. 
kind of nice, isn't it? Oh, it's a bit of a relief. But oh. uh, so we have uh, this. It's the unofficial, the the corn poll, where you go and you fill, you take a, a corn kernel. It's Iowa, you know. Right. <laughs> we have corn kernels here, and you drop it into a jar for your preferred presidential candidate. And so, you know, every four years uh, at the state fair, you see this display. But I've never seen anything like this where there's 26 jars, 25 for Democrats, and then um, Trump's got a jar there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you also have to look at the writing on it because you can look and say, ooh, there's not very many uh, corn kernels in that guy's jar. And it'll be like, say, half full. And then it'll say Joe Biden number six is go, Oh, he's on his sixth jar. So, you know, he's, and I think Biden was in the lead. I think, uh, there was Bill de Blasio had like two kernels <laughs> and, 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 and I believe it was New Yorkers that came here and said, we're voting for him because we want him out as mayor. <laughs> so, you know, the rest of the country can deal with him. Yeah. But it was, it was fascinating. They were there, they're giving their speeches and you had to work hard to avoid them. Oh yeah. Now I heard Elizabeth Warren apologized for her mistake and I didn't know if that was the one she meant that lasted for 40 years. I believe it was. And it isn't that fascinating. So you go, oh, so now it's a mistake. I mean, you, you didn't exploit this. You didn't write on an application for a law school that you were Native American. I mean, you put she put down for her race Native American, mm -hmm. not anything else, not a mix, not, you know, I'm half Irish, half Italian, for example. So if people ask me my heritage, I say that. And I usually say, and so are my brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's an unusual coincidence there. Mm -hmm. But uh, see, she puts, you know, basically like 100 percent Native American, you know, the the, the Harvard uh, I forget what they would call, you know, I guess it's her bio would say that we have our first, you know, professor of color. And I mean, she contributed a, a couple of recipes to a book called Pow Wow Chow. And these were family Native American recipes that it turns out she stole those from somebody else's cookbook. So you go, this is a major fraud. It's, it's, you know, lover or not, it's like this is this isn't going to go away. And and I can tell you in a debate, I don't think Trump's going to let it go away. They're saying him calling her Pocahontas is cultural appropriation, but she makes four hundred thousand dollars a year to teach one class at college, and she got the job because she put down that she was Native American. So, you know, I think that's cultural appropriation, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, and I remember that big DNA test that she was so excited to reveal on television. And now she has scrubbed her website of all of those DNA results. I would like to know not only the people on her staff that uh, when they ran with this idea, then they got the results back and said, this is good. You're, you're maybe one 1,024th Cherokee. It's a possibility. <laughs> Let's put this up. This should put the rumors to rest. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's uh, that's not going to fly. And so whoever gave that advice and said, put that up, that'll that'll put it all. You know, so now she's having to apologize, which means like you'll you'll notice, you know, again, with Trump, you can love him or hate him or disagree or agree. But he understands the trap of apologies, because once you apologize, the new thing is, is people don't accept apologies anymore. They go for more. And so Elizabeth Warren's on her, what, second or third rewrite of the story of her Native American heritage. And I go, that means this isn't going away because her people are saying they're still asking. 
So you need to, maybe if you go out and apologize, it'll get put to rest. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the media will stop asking her about it. But when it comes to debates and when the Democrat field gets down to just a couple of people and she's one of them, I'm pretty certain that the uh, opponents are going to go for it. Mm -hmm. Democrat side, they're going to bring it up and say, you're a liar. That, yeah. that won't look good. Yeah. Patrick, did you know that 36 states have voted to uh, either stop switching the clocks forward and back each year or at least undertake a study of the question? Because Arizona and Hawaii, they dumped it altogether, daylight savings time. But they're arguing that this could be uh, something that can cause health consequences and it might end up killing you because you're you're chronically sleep deprived. When you're when your country springs forward, it costs you an hour of sleep. And you become disoriented, and Americans can face, apparently, according to the study, a higher risk of heart attack and stroke. And there's more car crashes and workplace accidents, too. Yeah. I think the sleep deprivation is kind of a big deal. I know you suffer from it. You've got some insomnia. I know. I'm, I'm in a sleep deficit since 87, uh, I, I thought think. it was 88. Could be. Daylight savings time. You add up all those daylight savings <laughs> I, I wouldn't have a problem seeing it go away. You know, first off, I was always so confused because when they said turn the clock back, I said, well, how am I supposed to read it if I have the dial facing the wall? That just <laughs> seems ridiculous. Seemed totally uh, ridiculous. But my I, sister lives in Phoenix and she's happy. Okay. I'm, I'm blaming, I'm going to blame daylight savings time. And then you used, I, to, I, you used to hate setting the alarm, getting up at two to move your clock back oh, or God. forward. That was always a hassle. Technology has helped in that most of them, you know, move forward. It, you know, it's, it's the sad thing is, is I can't claim this as some sort of amazing task to my wife and say, well, your husband is taking care of all the clocks in the house. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, there's like one, there's one clock that you have to move. That's it. All the rest of them do it automatically. Mm -hmm. I always get, uh, like checking in with your, your parenting update. So I know you've got uh, younger kids and they're getting ready to go back to school. When do they start? They start Friday. Isn't it? Think this how Friday? beautiful this is. Yeah, they go in for one day and then they get a weekend. That's perfect. That's a good way to start. As your kids are getting a little older, are they 11 and 10, 12 and 11? Where are they now? 9 and 10. 9 and 10. Okay. Do you find that you are talking with them or at them more? With. Okay. I, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's, uh, we're not, we get the occasional lecture. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, my son is so easy. I don't know. I hope that my daughter's not listening right now. Not that she's difficult, but he just, you know, this morning we had to break the news to him that the water park we were going to take him to for his birthday, which was the other day, actually is closed during the week. And we didn't find that out till this morning. And he was all excited because that's what he wanted for, you know, take his best buddy to the water park and then to the theme park. And, uh, you know, a couple of tears come out and then he rolls with it and says, well, what else can we do? And we start throwing other plans in that, by the way, all failed. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he has successfully rolled with them. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I would say we still talk with them. My wife is a master at I don't know how she has managed to be so good at knowing exactly what a kid needs to hear when. So this question, this question would be for both parents and grandparents, and yeah. maybe uh, you would just be able to answer this as a parent. So how good are you at starting spiritual conversations with your kids? You know, we're 
we're getting a little bit better at it now. The kids a couple of weeks ago had vacation Bible school, and my son, who was eight at the time, now he's nine, uh, he decided that he wanted to read the Bible every day. And we had a we had a good run going there, and it, it's it's fallen off a bit from that. But um, there were there were certain lessons that they taught. He's kind of a Ten Commandment kind of kind of kid. Like today, even you know with what we were going to do with him and his friend for uh, this birthday, he said, well, I'd like to include my sister because I just don't want her to feel left out. I go, golly, who is this kid? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I, 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 I have told you stories before. He always thinks of other people. So I, that's so a beautiful he, thing. He does really well with um, some of the biblical stuff. Uh, my daughter's fallen off a little bit. And so, um, we always make sure we do our prayers before meals and before bed, and that habit has stuck real well. And then it seems like once a week, maybe twice a week, we're getting the Bible out for let's read something together. Mm-hmm. But those are still pretty young kids, and the fact they like reading the Bible is is, is awesome. You know, they've developed yeah. an appetite for learning more about God's Word, so that's fantastic. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, and my wife has a one of her majors was in religion, so uh, it's great to have her around because she can answer questions that I can't even begin to like. Ooh, gosh, that's a good question. These these kids are they're curious about things, and it's nice that you have the Bible there for answers, and then somebody that can help put it into nine and ten year old language. Yeah, no kidding. And are you going to resume your handwritten notes in their lunch pails this year? The demand is high. The demand is high. I just want our listeners to know Patrick writes this charming, hilarious little note and puts it in his kids' lunch pails every day. So when they pull out their lunch pail, they see this little funny note. So dad is thinking of them. And I just can't recommend that enough to all you parents that are going to be uh, sending their kids off to school with lunches. I started uh, just as a joke one day because um, mid-December last year, I had one, I had two slices of turkey left in the package. So I put one extra slice on each sandwich. And I said, well, you can't just let that go. <laughs> you got to point that out. <laughs> so I said, now with 20% more turkey. And then I went 112 consecutive lunch days till the end of the school year. Now there's 180 days in school. I'm thinking, can I come up with, that's, that was 112 original notes. Can I do 180 new ones? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, I just want to say there's strength in not just sending them a text or something electronic, but a handwritten note from mom or dad that goes in their lunch pail every day. They're, they're being thought of, and they start to show that off to their friends. Hey, look what my dad put today. That becomes a, almost a bragging point, and it's something that is uh, really lets them feel loved and connected, and boy, mom and dad are thinking of me. Oh, one day I actually... I. I used Christmas paper, wrapping paper, and I wrapped up the sandwich container, the sandwiches in the container, and then I wrapped up the container, and the, and the note said, now with free gift wrapping. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, that was a huge hit. Yeah, thanks as always for doing the show on Mondays. I always look forward to our chats. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. You bet. Patrick Albanese has been my guest, my friend and colleague from prestigious Quest Des Moines. We'll take a short break and be right back.
In Acts chapter 17, it says, starting at verse 26, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole world, whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Powerful passage, and my guest in studio is David Cross. He is the president of Professionals Global. It's a mission training agency. He's written a book called Work of Influence, Principles for Professionals from the Book of Daniel. And he also has got a couple of uh, works in progress that we're going to chat about as well. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm glad to be here. No kidding. Now, one of the uh, parts of your trip to Minnesota is to drop off your son, Jonathan, at college. Yes, he's going, he's to, going college. to my alma mater. I'm so yeah. glad that And your alma mater would be what? Right here at the University of Northwestern. That's the answer Very we excited. were looking for, mm-hmm. just so you know. And he as well. He's really looking forward to it. Yeah. He, had an opportunity to meet a few professors when he visited, and uh, that just spurred him on. He yeah. wants to go. And your wife feels like she's reached a little uh, goal as well. That's absolutely she, right. She homeschooled him, and now he is excelling yes. in all of his testing and now going to college. How yep. cool is and that? And he's our first one that we're launching, so mm-hmm. uh, that's it's kind of a pat on the back for her. She's excited about it. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, being influencing uh an influencer when we're in our in our work and mm-hmm. what we need to uh, learn in terms of reaching out and connecting with people. Absolutely. I know it's kind of a broad question and I should have articulated it better, but you know what? It's Monday. And that's all right. That's all right. You know, actually, I could uh, recap a bit from our last discussion. Why don't uh, we? Back in February, we talked about the book Work of Influence, uh, Principles for Professionals from the Book of Daniel. And we saw how Daniel himself was an example of living out your faith uh, in your work to to do it mm-hmm. as to the Lord right. and not to men. Right. And so there are a number of principles, 25 principles that I outlined there that we can learn from the life of Daniel. And uh, now as I look ahead to some of these other books that I'm working on, it's really building on that to see that our work matters. It doesn't matter if it's even, you know, janitorial work or landscaping work or, or a professor at a university. Our work matters because it's, it's part of the culture uh, that, that God has given us to live out and to grow in. Mm-hmm. Now, when we were talking earlier, you were mentioning of someone that arrived in the States in the 40s. Yes. I would love for you to tell our listeners that story. Yes. Well, this re- relates, in fact, to the uh, the second book that you mentioned uh, that I'm uh, writing right now or that I'm working on. It's called Reaching Muslims for Christ. Mm-hmm. It was originally written by Bill Saul, who was the president of Arab World Ministries. And Bill, um, he, he wrote such a winsome book that really just... Uh, It's very practical. He gives you assignments at the end of chapters. For instance, go introduce yourself to a Muslim and just learn their name. Uh, Then, you know, building on that, ask your your Muslim friend this question and and so on. Well, building on uh, the person that you mentioned uh, from the 1940s, uh, Syed Utub, uh, it's a kind of a tricky name for Americans to pronounce. Syed Utub? Yes, Syed Utub. Utub, okay. He came from Egypt and... It's really interesting. He came as what you would call a nominal Muslim or a secular Muslim. He wasn't really devout. But then during his time here, 
uh, he talk about culture clash. Uh, there was somebody on the boat as it was uh, as it was coming over that was, you know, in this raucous party trying to push their way into his cabin and all of these things. They're drunk and you know half dressed and all of these things. That's that was his introduction to America, and it didn't get much better even when he got here because. During his whole four years of college uh, or university studies, he never called an American his friend. He never got to that point. Wow. He never set foot in an American home. Well, based on his writings, when he started while he was here, in fact, uh, he, I mentioned he came as a secular Muslim. While he was here, uh, he published his first book. He sent the manuscript back to Egypt, and that became the, uh, the fundamentalist manifesto, essentially, for the Muslim Brotherhood. And it was out of the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, that even things like Al Qaeda or ISIS were formed from from that teaching. Uh, I could tell a little bit more about that. Where he uh, his brother started a cell group in Cairo based on the books or the book that his brother had written here in the United States, and his name or out of that cell group that was Ayman Al Zawahiri. That's Al Qaeda's number two. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't the brother, but th that was the person in that cell group that started this based on Syed Utub's writings. Mm -hmm. Then further, uh, Syed Utub's brother escaped jail uh, because they had plotted to overthrow uh, and kill Nasser, who was the leader of Egypt. Syed Utub got, uh, or was killed because of that. He was put to death. But his brother escaped and went to Saudi Arabia and taught in the university there. And he had a student that was particularly glued to his lectures, and that was Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. So there was a connection, a direct connection to the number one and the number two of Al-Qaeda that we had an opportunity to reach in 1948. And unfortunately, no one ever uh, invited him into his home or her home. No one ever called him a friend or befriended him uh, so that he went away with this animosity toward the West. It's, it's stunning. David, it really is. And I even will uh, say I can hear that pattern in some of the shootings we see in schools. Mm. You know, they, they don't have people they call friends. They're isolated. They, right. No one has reached out to them. No one has made them their friend. Yes. And then they've probably got some mental illness on top of it or something. But anyway, um, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful point. Mm. And we see that, too. There's a, a gentleman I was re reading recently, uh, a, a book called Cities of God by Rodney Starks. And he looks at the history from the first 300 years of the Christian church. How did it get to such a large number of people that it could become the Roman religion? Um, and really his point is, what he's seen, is that there were a number of places where Christians would befriend people where others would not. There were, for instance, some plagues that went through and killed even 30% of the population. Well, the Christians were people that sacrificially loved those people that were sick and nursed them back to health or took care of them when an earthquake destroyed the entire uh, village or city that they were in. And so it came to be that by about 300, uh, virtually everyone either knew someone who had been nursed to health by a Christian or had themselves survived the, this plague or something in order to be a, uh, a Christian themselves. Uh, so it's amazing to see how that tangible living out of our faith can affect an, a complete society. Mm -hmm. David, maybe you could encourage us to be more intentional with reaching our Muslim neighbors. 
Absolutely. When we were talking earlier, you asked, you know, well, how do I do that when I, uh, my, my days are booked end to end? And, and I, I barely... hardly see the friends I have, let alone go make new ones. That's right. And, and That's I, right. Where do I go to do that? Well, first thing I would say is we need to build in margin. We need to build in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we pray for God to reach the world. Well, are we ready for him to answer that? It's <laughs> a great question. Do we have, you know, hours each night to be able to disciple somebody, uh, to be able to walk with them through Scripture? Uh, you know, honestly, most of us probably wouldn't be able to say that. And so we don't, we need to build in that time that needs to be there in order to reach out and have God answer that. Now, I will say things like um, simply inviting someone into your home. Uh, even I'll back up from that and just saying salam. Salam is the Arabic word for peace. Uh, it's used for any Muslim. It doesn't matter if they're Arab or not. If you say salam, then they hear that in their own language, and it's it's something that's meaningful to them. It doesn't have, I mean, it's not a religious uh, phrase or anything like that. It's just a very simple greeting of peace. Um, and then following on to that, saying you know, my name is Bill. What are, uh, what's your name? Yeah, just something simple like that. And then, um, you know, planning to meet that person for coffee or inviting them into your home. If you've got a family and they, you know, you see a family of, uh, you know, that are dressed in a, a Muslim way and you introduce yourself and say, hey, would you like to come to my house next Tuesday? I know, you, you know, there aren't any... Uh, um, Things that, there are some things that you can't eat, like, for example, pork or uh, alcohol. I'm not going to serve you any of those things. Uh, in fact, how about chicken? How about chicken? Is that a good uh, meal? And that's what people defer to uh, when they don't know what the meat is that's mixed in. So those are some of the tangible, practical examples I would give in order to uh, have people you know, know some steps, you know, step by step, getting to know uh, you know, who these people are and how mm-hmm. we might reach out to them and befriend them. What if, you, what if you have a dog? Do they consider that filthy and that was not a place they would feel welcome? They do. And so that can be, a, a, um, you know, that can be a, a trick. You know, one thing you might say is we do have a dog. Now I'm happy to put him away into another room while you're there. Mm-hmm. And just be open about it right. and just ask them, the person. Or you could just offer something else. Or we could meet at, you know, a coffee shop or a restaurant, um, you know, even an Arab restaurant or a Somali restaurant or something. Mm-hmm. They know that everything there will be something that they can sure. eat. Sure. So that's a safe bet. Or you could even say, you know, I, we could, you know, purchase some catered food from those places, bring them back to our house. That's and, a smart idea. Uh, and do that. So yeah. that they know for sure that there's nothing you know, yeah. that's going to be offensive to them. So after Salam, did I say that mm-hmm. right? Salam. That's right. Yeah. Um, after that, when you start to have dialogue about faith, what are some good leading questions to start with? Mm. What I would actually direct people to do is uh, we, we teach what's called a discovery Bible study. In Professionals Global, we, we train people just on practical ministry for everyday people. You don't have to be a seminary graduate in order to know how to lead a Bible study. Uh, in fact, we have a set of questions uh, that maybe we could even put on your website or something. It's very simple. Uh, you read a passage like Genesis chapter 1, uh, and you, you, here's the creation story. Read that aloud, and then you ask, what does this teach us about God? And everybody gets an opportunity to answer that. So they have to think through it. Even if it's something that someone else says, if they put it into their own words, that allows them to think through it and answer. What does this teach us about people? And that 
You know, every passage of Scripture, we can, we can see the mark of people in it. What are we going to do about it? So what's our response going to be? If, this is, if God created the world, what's our response going to be to, uh, you know, dumping my oil down the drain or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly, uh, what are you going, or who are you going to tell? And so that immediately puts it into a sharing context where they start telling different people about the stories. I'll tell you one uh, one person that I did this with. Aaron is is the name that I used to talk about him. And um, Aaron said, "Well, I see that God created all things, and so I don't want to harm any of His creatures, even the little ants." <laughs> and I, I thought, "Okay, well, that's not quite as specific as I was looking for, but." Nonetheless, the next week, his wife said, oh, you have to ask him, ask him what he did. And I said, all right, you said you didn't want to hurt any of God's creatures. How did that go? And he said, well, I woke up on Tuesday morning at two o'clock in the morning and went to the restroom and there was a big, long cockroach. And I took off my sandal and I was about to kill it. And I said, wait a minute. I promised God that I wouldn't harm any of his creatures. And so he went to the kitchen, got a plastic bag, shooed the cockroach into the plastic bag and took it outside to set it free. One cockroach saved by a Discovery Bible study. That's fantastic. But nonetheless, he was doing what he said he was going to do. And he told the people that he uh, said he was going to tell. So um, that's a a simple way I would say, would you like to uh, learn about the prophets? If I learned somebody's name, you know, and then I would invite them to learn about the prophets. And that's what we start with right there in Genesis. Yeah. I think the key word you said, David, was being intentional. If Mm. we're praying for the lost and the dying, when are we making time to be available to do discipleship. That's right. And if your your answer is, I don't know, mm-hmm. eh, then you got a problem. Yeah, yeah. Often we get caught up in so many other things that just take our time, whether it's hobbies or, you know, uh, things with, with believers. I mean, those are great things mm-hmm. and they're important in their place. But we can't just fill our entire schedule and all of our lives with those things when God has called us to reach the world. Well, With the passage that you read earlier that you started out, um, God has brought the world to us. And so here's our opportunity to reach out to them with as simple a thing as saying salam. Mm -hmm. Now, I need to go to break here, but just maybe in the next minute, uh, David, you could talk about that verse out of Acts 17, starting in verse 26, about how God has a plan for marking out the appointed times and boundaries of people in land so that they may hear him and seek him. Yes, absolutely. Well, we can look back at the the past 30 years of the massive immigration, even of uh, Somalis, for example, right here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And we say, why would Somalis pick this place out of all places? It's it's not a similar climate. It's not a similar people group. You know what? They, they might not have an idea of where we're going to start from. You know, they might come from uh, drinking camel's milk in Mogadishu, but is that available here? Well, now it is in some ways, but uh, at that time, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't. Well, those people then uh, have, have this opportunity to hear the gospel. God is the one that set up their, the, the times, this specific time, and demarcated the boundaries of their dwelling places. He brought them here. And the purpose clause there is so that they might seek God. Mm. We can be a part of that. Yeah. Because that's no small group here in Minnesota. I mean, the Somalis are, I think, over 100,000. Yes, yes. Numbers. And this, uh, 
Minneapolis area and mm-hmm. Toronto, they kind of trade places as the number one uh, okay. Somali population outside of East Africa. Uh, but it's an incredible opportunity here for people that uh, need to know about Jesus. Mm-hmm. David Cross is my guest, and we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. We were not gone too long. I have David Cross in studio. He is the president of Professionals Global. It's a mission training agency. He's got a couple of works in progress coming up that I'm excited about. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about a couple of those projects. Sure thing. Yeah, I'm uh, in the middle of one of them is the Integral Life. Uh, it's the com- it's complete passion and purpose for God is the subtitle that I'm looking at, and the idea is to really build on the previous book, Work of Influence. Work of Influence establishes the integrity and the intrinsic value of the work that we do and how we can serve God in that work. It's not just professional missionaries or pastors and full-time Christian workers, but it's people who are working full-time for God. Um, So I want to build on that. And one of the ways that I do that is I use the example of work uh, in order to demonstrate interdependence. Now, I I, I say interdependence, not dependence uh, and not independence. Uh, We can look in history at a declaration of independence uh, that was at the Tower of Babel. And we could say, well, that was, uh, if you think about it, they wanted to build a tower to reach heaven so that they could be, they could build a name for themselves, for these people. God had commanded them to go out and to take his glory, being those people that bear the image of God, into all the earth. And instead, they wanted to stay put. They wanted to make a name for themselves and take the very seat of God. Well, if you contrast that, on the other hand, uh, with what I call the telos tower. The telos is the Greek word for aim or purpose or goal. And if we look at that and say, what is our aim, our purpose, our goal? Well, it is to live out this image of God and to take it into all the earth. That goes out through our families, through our friendships, through our churches, through all of those different relationships, through our marriages. So it's not just about work where we are interdependent one on another, uh, but it's in families as well, for example, and in friendships and so on. So I use the example, for example, that I say, uh, you know, you're an electrician. Please do the electrical work in my house because I'd probably kill myself if I did that. Now, on the other hand, I'll, I'll write books. I'll do teaching, you know, these different things. I'll study linguistics. So you don't have to worry about that. And in that way, you know, we are interdependent on one another. What does a contractor do? Well, they, they call in somebody to do the carpentry, somebody to do the brick lane, somebody to do other masonry, other, uh, somebody to pave the roads. Not one person does all of those things. We are dependent on each other. And, and in that same way, we're dependent in marriage, for example. When we look at, uh, you know, I bring things to my marriage that my wife doesn't have. Uh, and my children see the way that we walk those things out and how they complement one another. And they then know how that models out for their children and for their marriages that are yet to come. So in that way, we can, uh, we can live in this integral life, this whole life uh, that, we, that we walk. I like the word integral because it's, it's like integer is a <laughs> whole number. Integral is the whole thing. 
you know, you get to that in calculus and nobody wants to be reminded of pre-calculus or calculus or trigonometry and those things. I didn't know there was a difference. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Um, But integral is the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want. We don't want part of my life. We don't want to say, oh, well, do what I do on Sundays, not what I do Monday through Friday. We want to integrate that whole thing, bring it all together. Mm -hmm. So in professionals global, it's, you you train, you train tent makers Mm -hmm. and you do language learners. So you teach a a communication approach that allows missionaries to begin learning the language and quickly, right? Yes. And then also you do disciple making. Now you lived in the Middle East for a while, didn't you? Right. I lived there for three years. Mm -hmm. And then we also lived and and had a ministry team that we were leading here in Minneapolis uh, Mm -hmm. that worked with Somalis and Arabs. Um, so those, yeah, that, that's kind of been my life for about 15 or 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about, um, tr- uh, training disciple makers and language learners, mm-hmm. are these full-time missionaries primarily? Not necessarily. Interesting. A lot of them are not. And actually I would say, uh, most of them are not because most of them are doing everyday jobs like you and like I might be or something working, uh, even at Chick-fil-A or at, I mean, that was one of the most uh, fun things I had was to encourage one of my friends who's a manager at a Chick-fil-A, uh, just of how his, he uh, enables me to take my family to a nice, you know, afternoon, uh, you know, there and, and have a nice meal. Um, and so we're all interdependent on one another. And that even, even at Chick-fil-A or fast food restaurants or something, we depend on each other. And when we do that well, when we do those jobs really well, that stands out. People begin to ask questions like, why does, why does David care so much about his job? Why does he care about his work? Why does David treat men and women equally? Why doesn't David take bribes like other people do? Why doesn't David stomp on others as he's climbing the ladder of success or something like that? Well, they take notice, and then when that opportunity comes up, I share that it's because of what Christ has done in me, that he has put or he has kind of flipped things on their edge. Or, so I'm not the chief person. I'm not the main one, but it's God. It's his name and his glory. Tell me about these bribes and how can I start getting them? <laughs> that I haven't seen here. Oh, okay. I don't, don't want okay, to throw anybody under the bus here. More overseas. <laughs> yes. So, uh, David, tell me when, when God really struck your heart and this was going to be your life's work. Because you, you inspire me, like, really in a... Very big way. Hmm. And I know you do this with other people, so I'm not alone on this deal. Well, I am happy to give the credit uh, to right. Northwestern College. Okay. Honestly, yeah. I, I will say it is Northwestern College. Uh, when I came here, um, I uh, my first year was, you know, as, as you'd expect, just normal. I was actually preparing to go as a, or to be a pastor. Um, and then I took the uh, world religions class. And um, a friend, I mean, I was just overwhelmed with the, some of the statistics that I read and heard uh, that, you know, these people don't have anyone to tell them about Jesus. You know, Hinduism, for example, or Muslims, uh, they don't, they just don't have anybody that's going to them. It's not as though they're turning away from the church that's on the corner. They don't have a church on the corner. Mm-hmm. They don't have a Christian bookstore. They don't have a Bible in their language. That's a serious thing. So I wanted to be part of that solution of seeing those people come to know the Lord. I mentioned this to a friend of mine, uh, and that summer he gave me a book called The Last of the Giants by George Otis Jr. It said 
in, in short, since communism has fallen, the last of the giants that oppose Christianity are Hinduism and Islam. Wow, did those those statistics speak to me reading that book. And I, I grabbed my sister's dog and went for a walk, and I can remember the very house that I was standing in front of that I said, well, that's it. If this is the greatest need, and I want to be part of the greatest need, that's where I need to be. And Muslims are very spiritually hungry, aren't they? They are. They are. <laughs> uh, when I went to study in the Middle East uh, in my junior year here at Northwestern College, um, I studied in Cairo, and while I was there, the director of the program gave us the injunction, don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics. Well, what's the first thing that everybody wants to talk about, <laughs> religion and yeah. politics? And, yeah, they really are interested in hearing what we, what we believe and learning more about it. And when we sit down and do something as simple as studying the prophets, you know, that's a, a, a key thing for them because they respect the prophets. And so... We say, well, let's study the prophets. Let's read what they wrote themselves. That's a very educational thing for them. Yeah. David, so nice to have you in studio. Really, I get inspired when you come in. Thank you for, for stopping by. I'm so glad to yeah. be here. Yes, David thank Cross has been my guest, and his book is called Work of Influence, Principles for Professionals from the Book of Daniel. He's got uh, 25 amazing principles. You're going to learn a lot from this book. And he's got a couple in the works. We'll have him back when these books come out. We're going to take a little break, and then Bob and Cheryl Muller in for Hour 2. Can't wait. Be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.